1: Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Posse of the People. On this episode, we have the news with me, Brittany Clint, And Sam, as always. And we also have a special guest, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, one of the senators from New York State, is here to talk to us about her work and about the work at hand in the U.S. Senate.
2: On this tax bill, which is as toxic and as corrupt as you possibly could imagine, just one example from your background, you know how, as a teacher, you might buy pens and pencils and supplies. Staplers. You don't get to take a tax deduction under this bill, but the corporation, they still get to deduct all their office supplies. Like, it's such BS.
1: Before we begin, I'll leave with a quote that's been on my mind. It is, they do not need to silence us if we do not use our voice. We often hear people say the silence will not save us, and that is true. And over the past three years, we've seen people use their voices in ways they didn't know they could, and that has been incredibly powerful. This quote, though, reminds me that one of the ways that oppression persists, one of the ways that dominant culture persists, is that it convinces us to believe that our lives are too busy, that there's too much stuff going on to speak out about everything or to talk about what's happening, that we often feel alone in our stories. But the reality is, is that there's so many other people who are living lives with the same pain and the same joy and the same trauma and the same successes as we are. And we'll never know that unless we talk to each other. So when I think about why I started the pod, when I think about all of this work in organizing it is leading to us having the language and making sure that we say our stories because we know that stories is its own form of power. So when I see this quote say they do not need to silence us if we do not use our voice, Say so that we don't want to make their work easy for them. We want to make sure that our voices are always in the mix. And now the news with me, Brittany Packnett, a former member of the Ferguson Commission, appointed by President Obama to the... Task Force in 21st Century Policing and an incredible leader in education. We have Samuel Sinyangwe, our resident data scientist, and Clint Smith the III,
3: I, 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 our resident academic.
4: Hey, y'all, it's the news. This is Brittany Packnet at Miss pacchetti on all social media.
3: And this is Samuel Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter.
5: What's going on, y'all? This is Clint Smith at Clint Smith third
3: Aye, aye, aye.
1: And this is Duray at Duray D R A Y on Twitter.
5: So this weekend, uh, I went and saw Coco, which was an incredible film. So good, brilliant, and just like really a testament to um, how important it is and how successful um, films can be when they tell like these really beautiful, authentic stories of people of color. Um, But for the first like 30 minutes of the movie, there was this Frozen short which was just very confusing because it was like, it's like when your mom makes you eat the Brussels sprouts before you get to eat your chicken, except <laughs> like this, except Frozen has no nutritional value. So it was just like pointless. And so I was very Shame. sad, very disappointed. And I'm not even trying to hate on Frozen. But when you show up to see one film and then you get like a mixtape of another film, it was just too much. And I was like, this is, this is ruining my Cocoa vibe.
4: It sounds like that time you two put their out al- their new album on all of our phones, and none of us asked for it. And I love you too, but I mean, none of us asked for that album.
5: <laughs> there
3: it is.
4: I haven't yeah. seen Coco though, so I don't even know what the controversy is over this short and yeah, why it was so bad.
3: You got to see it. Um, so so I went this past weekend, and first of all, Coco, amazing. But you know, you get into the movie theater. You see the previews, like the previews are incredible, like A Wrinkle in Time, Eva DuVernay. Like it's uh, like all of the previews are just you're in it, you're ready for the movie to start. And then it automatically jumps into Frozen. And so like you're spending the next 30 minutes just listening to, I think it's like this snowman who's trying to find something for Christmas cheer. Like I don't even I don't even remember the plot. I just know it was so boring. It like completely killed the vibe. (laughs) And, and then Coco comes on and it's just amazing, just like visually stunning, like the graphics, the like the, the voices, like everything about it is incredible, the storyline. And so the, at the end of the day, you sort of come out of the movie theater and you have this juxtaposition between like Frozen, which got all these acclaims and awards, but, you know, was completely boring and uninteresting compared to Coco. Uh, and I think that's why we need more movies like Coco. They just
1: reported that after December 7th, uh, that Frozen 20-minute short will no longer be playing in theaters. Some people are saying that's in response to the overwhelmingly negative feedback that the Frozen short about Olaf has gotten. And Disney is suggesting that they always plan for it to be a limited run and to end (laughs) at some point. But, you know, either way more people will not have to endure this uh, short. And hopefully I'll go see Coco afterwards. I've heard the songs are great. I've heard like everything about it is like a dope movie.
3: So my piece of news is a comment from Chuck Grassley uh, about this tax bill. So, you know, a little bit of background. Uh, if you haven't sort of been plugged into what's going on over the past, I guess, week, the Senate recently passed they. Tax. I, I don't want to call it a tax cut. I think in the media it's sort of being called a tax cut, but when you look at the data, it actually raises taxes on a whole lot of people. Uh, so tax bill, they passed it, and one of the things that they passed was a change to the estate tax uh, that makes it that it raises the deduction from five million to eleven million dollars. So it, it used to be that if you had. Uh, a, an estate worth more than $5 million, you would be taxed 40% on the amount above $5 million. Uh, And now in the Senate bill, they raise that to $11 million. In the House bill, they repeal the estate tax altogether. Uh, And then Chuck Grassley today uh, is from Iowa, uh, gave this statement where he says, I think not having the estate tax recognizes the people that are investing as opposed to those who are just spending every darn penny they have, whether it's on booze or women or movies. So- so here you have this man presenting the estate tax as a sort of positive, uh, as as something that needs to be repealed because it somehow limits the ability of good investors and everybody else who makes less than what would be $11 million under this bill or $5 million today is somehow wasting all of their money and could have $5 million if they just didn't spend it all on booze or women or movies. And I think this just really highlights the... Um, the world view of some of these Republicans who are passing these proposals that will so drastically uh, impact low income communities and advantage wealthy communities.
1: The tax bill was so, so wild to me because, you know, I was really hoping that Senator Collins would vote against it. I think, you know, at school in Maine, I think about Mainers as like rational actors in the space that, you know, Collins didn't vote for the healthcare bill. So Collins voted on this because she got a letter of assurances with the things that she cared about. And then she got sort of verbal commitments that the deficit wasn't going to increase and that, um, Medicaid was going to go untouched. And she just did a stint on, meet the press where she said she believes that the legislation would not increase a deficit because economists she's talked to said that it'll result in higher economic growth. So she essentially is like making the roundabout argument for trickle down economics, which we know does not work. It didn't work, but that literally flies in the face of both the estimates from the tax foundation and the joint committee on taxation which say that the bill could cost an estimated $516 billion to $1 trillion, respectively. So, like, everybody who's done any assessment of this says it's going to raise the deficit. And I must say, I was, like, really disappointed in Senator Collins, and I'm still disappointed in her, for voting for it and parroting what we
3: all know to be a lie. I was just going to say, you know, one of the most ridiculous parts of this whole process has been watching how easily it's been for Republicans to all coalesce behind a bill that has absolutely no evidentiary support that it will achieve the objectives they say they want to achieve. So objectives of economic growth, lowering taxes on the middle class, like all of those things the bill doesn't do. And yet they're saying it does it and are voting on it anyway. And yet whenever we want to propose something that would actually help low-income families, help middle-class families, help communities of color, there is this different standard of proof applied where all kinds of research is needed first, all kinds of data to support this conclusion is needed first. And even then, it's an uphill battle. You have to present all of this. You have to overcome the opposition. You have to deal with interest groups who are trying to to block this from happening. And more often than not, the bill ends up not g- even getting a vote. Uh, and then you just see when a, when a bill would help the wealthy, that's the only requirement needed to pass legislation these days. And I think that speaks volumes for where we are.
4: Let's not forget all of the things that are attached to this particular bill um, in both versions. We are talking about uh, the ability to drill for oil um, that will absolutely kill Arctic wildlife in Alaska. We're talking about the revocation of the individual mandate in Obamacare, which means upwards of 13 million people will lose their health care as a result of this bill. Let's not forget the long-term game of this, because when you increase the deficit— um, Predictably, Congress will then come back and say that there is no room for entitlements, that we cannot pay for the critical programs that everyday families use. We've seen Congress already start to question whether or not we can afford CHIP, uh, healthcare for children. And so, you know, I am just, um, I am incensed by just how quickly and insidiously this bill was passed. Uh, And, you know, I am reminded uh, that the argument is, of course, that this is somehow going to be a break for job creators and that, to your point, DeRay, we're going to see these corporate and wealthy tax cuts trickle down to the rest of us. But what history and research show us time and time and time again is that job creators do not reward the people who are doing the back-breaking labor, they reward themselves by way of uh, tax shelters for their money, by way of large bonuses for their senior and executive staffs. This money never, ever, ever sees the light of day in real people's homes.
5: Yeah, so clearly the the comments that were made reflect uh, a fundamental misunderstanding and a sort of perpetuation of, of a pathology of poverty that is, uh, as you all have said, like just fundamentally untrue and and. And disregards – and it's the, this is the thing about the way that so many of these folks in power talk about poverty is that I, it is – I don't think people understand how just like inexplicably difficult it is to live in poverty. And how like the way that this country and this society is set up, it is set up so that the poorer you are, the more difficult every other facet of your life is, right? So, so this sort of like caricature of poverty – Or that people are like poor because they have bought iPhones or they're spending money on booze and women and all of these other things is just categorically and empirically false. So there's that. But I want to bring it back to to Sam's original point about the estate tax. This idea that farmers are losing their land uh, because of the estate tax is fundamentally untrue. And so the American Farm Bureau. Federation uh, was unable to name a single example of a farm that has been lost to the estate tax. And this past year, there were fewer than 100 farms in the U.S. that owe any estate tax at all. Right. So like this this mythology that is propagated, that like we are hurting, hurting like quintessential Americans and farms and small businesses is just untrue. And it is used as a veil to legitimate uh Giving more money to people who already have an incredible amount of money, and what it does is just perpetuates this rising gap um, and ever increasing gap between the rich and the poor. So you know, there's there's a lot in this tax bill and a lot in the rhetoric around it, but uh, but we have
3: to be clear in what it is and what it isn't. A study by Capuch found that 35 to 45 percent of all wealth in the United States is inherited rather than self-made. So the, the level of tax on that wealth is an essential part of any effort to close the wealth gap.
4: And just a reminder to everyone listening, the... Um two versions of the bill that were passed are not yet reconciled. So they either have to be reconciled in conference negotiations or one of the versions has to be adopted. I know, Clint, a couple of weeks ago, you were talking about how the bills would affect graduate school students. The Senate bill um, would have graduate students faring a a bit better than they would in the House bill, although neither one of them are great. Um, So this is just a reminder to continue to call your senators, continue to call your representatives um, and continue to put pressure on this because it's not yet a completely done deal. Um, And they want to exhaust us. So we need to be engaged. We need to be alert. We need to be involved. So preparations for the 2020 census are underway. It is obviously only 2017, but it is literally never too early to be thinking about one of the most critical federal documents um, that helps determine all of our collective futures. And so a quick primer on the things that we need to be watching out for when it comes to the 2020 census. Um, first is who is running the show. Second is what the census will be asking. And third is how it can and historically has gone wrong. Um, first, we need to be paying close attention to uh, Trump's shortlist for uh, deputy director of the Census Bureau. So the director position is a Senate confirmable post. The number two in command, the deputy director, is does not have to be confirmed by the Senate. Originally, Trump had planned on nominating a guy named Thomas Burnell, um, who's a university professor, and um, Uh, for the census director position but was discouraged because he probably wouldn't be confirmed by the Senate because he has been so deeply involved in Republican redistricting throughout his career. So the census is supposed to be something that is above reproach, that is fully objective, that can have a lot of integrity, that's obviously not possible when you've got someone who's so deeply partisan um, running the show. And even as deputy director, he would still have a great deal of say over the day-to-day operations. So he would be the, take the lead in, in, in deciding how budgets were being spent and where offices were being open and what outreach is actually happening in underrepresented communities. Um, and so this is a, a pretty shifty deal that lots of um, watchdog groups and advocacy groups are paying close attention to, to see who exactly the Trump administration puts in this particular role, because who uh, is in that role will determine how confident the public actually is in engaging in the 2020 census. So that's the who. The What is really important? There are a number of ways in which the Census Bureau, over many years of research, has proposed to change questions on the 2020 census, particularly around race and ethnicity. Now, the Census Bureau has already decided not to include questions on sexual orientation, which was a big blow to the LGBTQ rights community. They had been advocating for this for a long time. They decided not to have that in the 2020 census. There are still some decisions that are um, to be made about race and ethnicity. So um, questions around Hispanic and Latino, questions around um, including folks who self-identify as Middle Eastern or North African, um, and also more more ethnic specificity for people who identify as white. Um, and there are lots of ways in which this will affect programming and supports that are coming to all of us, depending on how these questions are phrased. And the white house office of management and budget has the final say on whether or not they will answer, ask those questions. Well, that's the, what the, how is also really important. As I mentioned before, um, communities of color, marginalized communities are historically undercounted people of color, immigrants and young children are always undercounted. Um, and in this last census in particular, non-Hispanic whites and wealthy households were overcounted. So, uh, um, This has been happening since the 1940s, and there is lots of research being done internally and externally that shows this. But who is setting up how the dollars are being spent and what they are asking will determine whether or not these houses and these households continue to be undercounted. So it's something for us to be paying close attention to, even though it's three years away.
1: Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come.
6: Pod Save the People is brought to you by a factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's No Prep, No Mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's Fresh, Never Frozen meals. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, they sent me the factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to
1: Atlp.com slash people. We've had uh, a couple people on the pod to talk about this issue. We had the lawyers who are filing a lawsuit against. This administration, because they're just keeping so many of the preparation activities secret. So we know that the government is planning to use the Internet to collect so much of this census. That's what we've been told, but they have not been testing that process at all. So, you know, if you remember, there were people who like would visit your house or you'd mail in the census, but in 2020, it's supposed to be heavily done online, but we have no clue how that's going to happen or what that looks like and how that's going to impact uh, communities of color. They're supposed to be testing that out, and like that's not even happening. Uh, There's some other things with regard to the questions and how things are going to be structured that we should be knowing already. And again, so much is in the dark. So this administration is working really hard to keep the PrEP information uh secret or just not prepare at all, which, as Brittany already said, will have dire consequences for people of color if we are undercounted in a way that we just won't be able to undo for at least a decade. And there's so many things dependent on the the census numbers, like federal funding, a host of things that people take for granted until uh, you know, it comes to bite you.
5: Yeah, and I think the the pivot to using um the online service to conduct census work as opposed to having uh, more folks go from door to door is concerning um for a lot of civil rights groups and a lot of um marginalized communities because you know what we know is that according to the Pew Research Center, around thirteen percent of adults in the u s don't use the internet or have access to the internet at all uh, a huge and disproportionate amount of those are people of color um and and uh, and other groups of uh and other marginalized groups and and again, the, the implications of the of the census. So it's hard to overstate uh, how important the the census is, again, in terms of the implications. And I know we've gone over this before, but like this is what determines the number of seats awarded to states in the House of Representatives. Um, this is what determines how boundaries are drawn on a local, state and federal level and up to six hundred and seventy five billion dollars a year. Uh, are distributed federally, and are and the way that those funds are distributed are very much determined by uh, the information that is provided on the census. And so, if certain communities are undercounted, and if certain communities are miscounted and misrepresented, uh, then that has like very real economic uh, implications on the lives of those folks, and and also has political implications in terms of how those folks
3: are. Uh, represented. Yeah, this just reminds me how many sort of functions of the federal government are so important to every other uh, issue that we care about uh, when it comes to political representation, when it comes to our basic ability to measure things like uh, economic inequality, like uh, demographic change, like all of that. Uh, depends on the census being done in a proper way, in a way that doesn't exclude people uh, intentionally or even unintentionally. And and we see all of that fall apart when you have an administration that that will disregard uh, sort of all the conventions and norms and just sort of move ahead with uh, an agenda so, so directly focused on uh, exacerbating those inequities. So over the course of the last several weeks, there has been obviously... Um, a lot of
5: attention paid to the Me Too movement and the implications of those, the far-reaching implications of those, um, in terms of bringing to light um, and necessarily bringing to light the uh, sexual assault and harassment charges and allegations against uh, men in powerful positions in Hollywood, in the media, in politics, um, and and a lot of conversation has has happened, and and Brittany has been really. Um, at the forefront of talking about this along with others is, is being careful and being uh, paying attention to which people and which victims of sexual assault are, are deemed worthy of grief and deemed worthy of attention and worthy of a certain sort of mourning um, and which people aren't. And, and so part of the, what we have to think about is is where our empathy is directed and where it's not, and and so often, as is the case, um, it is not directed uh, at those who are in prison, and so there are many, many, many women in prison who are the victims of sexual assault um, and and intimate partner abuse, and it is and who are who are convicted and sentenced to uh, really extended and draconian um, prison terms. That are fundamentally entangled in, uh, in the assault that they have experienced, right? So I just wanted to bring up some numbers here. So uh, the 2010 National Intimate Partner and in Sexual Violence Survey found that approximately four out of ten black women have experienced rape, physical violence, sexual assault, or stalking by an intimate partner in their lifetime. Uh, The Institute on Domestic Violence in the African-American Community noted that while Black women are 8% of the country's population, they account for 22% of intimate partner homicides and 29% of all female victims of domestic violent homicides. In 2017, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention found that Black women are more than twice as likely to be killed by their partner than white women. Um, And at the same time, amid all of that, black women are disproportionately incarcerated. Uh, and the Bureau of uh, Justice Statistics found that the imprisonment of the imprisonment rate of black women was twice that of white women. And I bring this up because so often the way that we think about crime and criminal activity, we know it is subjective, right? We know that the way that we define what constitutes as criminality uh, is not an objective standard. All we have to do is look at the uh the senate race in Alabama and and you know the irony of Trump saying uh, vote for the person who is tough on crime and not considering the per- you know Doug Jones who prosecuted the uh KKK for killing the four little girls in Birmingham that that doesn't constitute as tough on crime but apparently being tough on crime means that you are someone who is charged with uh assaulting and harassing uh and molesting Teenage teenage girls on uh, in the case of Roy Moore, but beyond that, it is w- what this does is show that like intimate partner violence and sexual assault and and sexual violence are like deeply ingrained and entangled in the experiences that put women in prison in the first place, right? And so I just wanted to bring this up because I think it's really important that we sort of like complicate our ideas of. Um, Of criminality and like what what does it mean for uh, a woman to end up in prison for uh, murdering someone who constantly raped them, who constantly subjected them to violence, who constantly um, threatened their children, and so it is it's important for us to to contextualize and and complicate our our ideas of of crime uh, because I think that. It allows us to have a more sort of holistic understanding of the the conditions that lead someone to to do something that objectively uh, seems uh, immoral or certainly not good. And it is never good to kill someone. But we have to consider that there are many, many, many black women who are in prison um, for doing things that are really a means of protecting themselves against people who constantly inundated them with sexual violence.
4: Yeah. You know, just to double click on that last point, Clint, and I'm really thankful um, to you for continuing to bring this up, especially as men, but to add another layer into what you're saying uh, the overwhelming majority of women in prison are survivors of some kind of intimate partner or domestic violence. So three quarters of these women have I- experienced severe physical abuse by an intimate partner during adulthood. And 82 percent, 82 percent have suffered serious physical or sexual abuse as children. So whether or not... um these women are in jail for um, committing a crime against an intimate partner that may have been abusive. Um, nearly all of these women have experienced abuse at some point in their lifetime. It has been internalized. It has affected their psyche. Uh, and I say this over and over again, right? When you discard someone, you do not have to worry about their humanity. And who do we throw away consistently? Women, Black women brown women, LGBTQ women, the incarcerated and the formerly incarcerated. We say, you know, their stories be damned, their need to protect themselves and their children be damned, their dignity be damned, because all we are doing is throwing folks away. As you said, I've been saying this over and over again. Lots of women have. um, Lots of, uh, thankfully, more journalists have been highlighting this story, but um, I often bring it back to the story of R. Kelly and the accusations against him. The only reason why his career, it has not come tumbling down like Harvey Weinstein and Matt Lauer and Charlie Rose and all of these other folks who should absolutely be being held accountable in all the ways they're being held accountable and more. Um, The only reason why his career is not moving in the same direction is because his victims are young and Black and most of them did not grow up with any amount of wealth. Um, And those are the folks that we're okay discarding.
1: But I'll say here two things. One is, I'm also reminded about the way that we ignore and erase the stories that come from him. So Terry Crews, you know, he reported being sexually assaulted and, and there was like a moment where people listened, but you probably didn't see on the news that the person who assaulted him just got like suspended for like a, a small period of time and, and just returned to his job as like a senior level agent at one of the big firms. And You also think about the number of men who've been sexually assaulted who feel like they can't come out. They, they can't come out and say they were sexually assaulted either because people are really homophobic or because people won't believe them. And the Terry Crews incident, like being a, he's a straight black man who came forward with his, his, his story, and it just was sort of like taking his fodder in so many places. And you think about Raz B, who, a member of B2K, like, you know, I'll never forget when he came out, and people just joked him so bad that, like, we haven't heard from Raz B since. So while it is powerful that these stories are being uh, told, there are still people, like, all across identities who are not being listened to, like, who have been thrown away, who are living lives, who right now where they are proud that the conversation is happening, but the conversation isn't actually impacting their lives. And if if anything, this might actually be triggering them uh, because they are reliving the trauma with no recourse. So just wanted to remind us uh, that like we said last episode, there are more people with Me Too experiences and Me Too stories that you've heard. So my news today is about the word gap. It is uh, something in education that we've talked about for a while. And it was this study that was put out that said that children of professionals might hear about 45 million words uttered before the age of four and that children on welfare might hear just 13 million words. And this has sort of led people to this idea that there's like a 30 million roughly uh, word gap in low-income communities or like with kids on welfare uh, so that part of the work of equity in education will be like exposing kids to more words. And that has gone on in like, millions of PD sessions. I mean, people just take this as fact. It's not even something that people question. You know, I used to work in uh, senior levels in school systems. Three of the four of us on this podcast were teachers, and, like, we have heard this a gazillion times. And there's this uh, new—it's not even actually new. There's an article written in The Atlantic that got little fanfare, and it's called Beyond the Word Gap. It came out in April of uh, 2016, and it essentially— like highlights how flawed the study is is that it talks about the study that the sample size for the study was just 42 families in the Kansas City area and that nearly all of the professional families are white while all of the six families receiving welfare were black and you know this this article highlights how problematic the study was and how it actually reinforces some of the, the undertones of sort of racist thought that has permeated academia for so long and that how going unchallenged, like this study has changed an entire course of like PD intervention, all this stuff in education, but it's not clear that the study's conclusions actually hold up in any relevant way. So I just want to bring this here. It is a highlight to me about how we need to have more public conversation about some of the research that swings so many of the practices. And it makes you think about how public education is one of those remaining areas where like the, we just do an injustice to the entire conversation because people aren't skilled yet. Like we don't have the public language to talk about so many things, whether it's like the best way to teach reading or the best ways to teach reading, what makes a good teacher, like school closures, there are a host of things in public education that we've just not figured out how to talk about. Research is one of them.
4: I found this um, to be an incredibly important piece, uh, especially working in education myself, you know, as soon as I read this, I said, well, of course, this would be an issue with the methodology. Of course, this would have led to such skewed results, Um and this is a critical reminder not to just blindly trust the research, right, but to look at the who and the how. The researchers and the methodology always matter. And everyone and every study has bias. Who the researchers are and the methodology they use helps us determine to what degree biases influence the results. Um And it seems that perhaps there was a large degree of bias here, you know, and I say that as someone who has said this very thing before, right? The phrase 30 million word gap was practically scriptural in the education community. It was something that many of us peppered into our speeches to motivate teachers and donors. Um, But it should be noted that as we question these kinds of things and as we push back on the methods that are used to investigate what's happening in our communities, that we're not questioning these things simply to be contrarian or always be against something, but rather to be for real substantive and substantial and nuanced solutions for our communities instead of um, thin solutions that are built on falsely framed problems.
3: You know, this is something where you know, if you are in the space of education, like the word gap study is like probably the most prominent and well-known and frequently cited study out there. Um, and this really goes to show how You know, research itself uh, is oftentimes uh, impacted by the biases of the researchers and the audience. Uh, And so, you know, you have situations where, you know, in this study in particular, you know, there were so many other alternative hypotheses that could have explained those results. Um, So, you know, as this article cites, you know, having parents react differently to being watched by the researcher. I mean, there are all kinds of different um, ways in which this study could be critiqued, uh, and yet you know that really sort of got brushed under the rug in favor of a broader explanation that sought to quantify um, the incredible and, and real inequities that exist between families uh, in terms of their ability and 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 background uh, of you know communicating sort of these these um, you know what have become sort of privileged. Uh, concepts and 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 um, learnings to kids. And so, you know, I, I say all of that because I think oftentimes we get stuck in this tendency to to take whatever research might support a particular point. Um, and oftentimes we have to l- sort of look behind the curtain and really interrogate where that research comes from um, before we begin to implement it uh, and turn that into policy.
5: None of us are suggesting that like reading to your child is not important like clearly it is i think that um what, what we're trying to do is interrogate the the methodologies of certain um certain types of research that present um certain ideas perhaps o- in a in an oversimplistic way that has not been sort of rigorously tested um and in this case you know the the famous word gap study was done with a, like very small Sample size of folks, and so that's important to keep in mind. But, but I think the the bigger picture is that espousing the importance of reading to your children and and decreasing the word gap and making sure that your children have access to um, books and and you know a, a vast vocabulary is incredibly important. But that conversation cannot happen as so many of the things that we talk about. That conversation cannot happen without. A meaningful or rigorous analysis of poverty. Like Lynn said, "This is not about saying that there's not work around literacy to be done
1: because surely there is, but it's interesting because what the study did is that it made people sort of pivot to exposure. So, like suddenly everybody was just trying to expose like low income kids to more words, and and that just might not be the the most effective strategy around literacy. Like the the study would lead you to believe that, but the study is so flawed that like." That might not be what if phonics intervention is like the is, is actually the thing that we need to be doing uh, as opposed to like mere word exposure in the way that it's been operationalized. So studies are important. They do help us think about and reflect on practice. Uh, but when we aren't rigorous in sort of evaluating them or when they become like sacrosanct and people just don't um, question them, like they have the potential to have the opposite impact than what we wanted them to have. That's the news. Don't go anywhere. More of to people's coming.
0: There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet. Which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high coverage foundation. More popular than soft launching your boyfriend more popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post Tubi it's more popular than influencers see you in there
7: here you are BPM's high sweat dripping body moving tongue
1: and now my conversation with New York State Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. Senator Gillibrand, thank you so much for joining us today on Patsy to the People. Thank you. Now, what is it like to be a senator in this context? Can you feel the difference now that Trump is president?
2: Yes, it's, it is different. Um, I think this time, more than any other that I've been in public life, uh, is more intense. And I say that because... Uh, with President Trump, every day is a different issue and a different outrage. So whether he's attacking DACA kids, or whether he's banning transgender troops, or whether he's saying or trying to undermine the independence of the judiciary, or um, you know this constant undermining of the Department of Justice, uh, the free press—I mean, each thing he's done is unsettling, and so. On the one hand, I'm fighting really hard against the stuff the president's doing that I think is bad. But at the same time, people in New York want me to get things done and want the country to be stronger and better. And so I'm constantly reaching across the aisle to try to work on bipartisan bills to make things better. And so it's an intensity that doesn't stop. It's just you're doing two things at once that are so different, battling one and then bringing people together on the other. And it just makes um, every day important. Uh, I've never felt my job was more important than I do now. Um, there's been many times I felt like, what am I doing here? But today I feel like I better be here and I better work really hard because if I stop or fail or stumble, then bad things might happen.
1: And why the Senate? Like you you could be doing a, a host of different things with your life. Why do you think that this is the most important thing that you could do?
2: You know, I... Uh, It's interesting. My path here is very unexpected. I wanted to do public service as a kid. I always wanted to do public service. I had a grandmother who loved public service. She was a lady who never went to college. She was a secretary in our state legislature in Albany. And she was a larger than life figure to me. She uh, had a salty mouth. She's War like a sailor. But she was a robust person who loved life and really thought that politics and public life was a way to help people. She very much believed it was an extension to social services. You know, in her day, she'd know which family needed a Thanksgiving turkey, which kid needed new shoes, which dad needed a job. And the work she did through politics was to make those things happen. And so I learned that from her young and I really admired her and I liked how strong she was and how certain she was. And so I kind of wanted to be just like her. And I remember when I was a little girl with my sister and my cousin, we were all sharing what we wanted to be when we grew up. And my sister, of course, said she wanted to be an actor, which she did become. And my cousin said she wanted to be a flight attendant, which she did not become. And I said I wanted to be a senator. Really? I did, but I didn't know what a senator was. <laughs> I just knew it was an elected person who had responsibilities and had important things to do. Okay. So I, I had this aspiration. And I'm sure it was state senator I was thinking of at the time. And But it was based on sort of how much I respected and regarded my grandmother. I didn't really recognize that feeling until I was... Um, you know, a young lawyer in New York city and realized that when Hillary Clinton went to China and gave her big speech, women's rights are human rights, human rights are women's rights. I woke up and thought, Oh my God, I'm not involved at all in politics as an adult. And I wish I was at that conference and I'm not there because I wasn't invited because I'm not involved in politics. And I wanted to be part of something bigger than myself. And uh, eventually by working on people's campaigns and doing lots of grassroots organizing for about a decade, I finally had enough confidence to run for office, and it took 10 years. But then I did run, and I ran for Congress. And then when I was appointed to fill Hillary's seat, um, it was just a long shot. And I only put my name in for consideration because my husband, who's always been a great guiding light for me, very simply said, do you think you could help more people in the Senate than in the House? And I said, yeah, I'd be responsible for 20 million people, not my 600,000 congressional district. He said, well then you should put your name in for consideration because we're only in this if we're gonna help people. And that's sort of what started me on this path to be a US senator.
1: Do you feel like you're in a place where you can help people?
2: I do. And I and I thank I thank God for that every day. I really think I do make a difference. Um I do a lot on a bipartisan basis, actually passing bills like don't ask, don't tell, repeal and the 9-11 health bill, the stock act banning insider trading. Um, working a lot on the sexual violence space, uh, not passing any bills yet in that space, but absolutely raising the debate. And so I know that if I hadn't made such a big deal about this in the military over the last five years, we wouldn't have as much transparency as we have today. And we wouldn't be having the national dialogue on that issue that we are having today because I use my platform to tell other people's stories. It's about a way to amplify other voices.
1: How did that issue come to you? Like, why did you know that that was even an issue? So
2: I didn't, and I... Explain
1: the issue so people don't know I'll start from
2: the beginning. So I was not really aware of this issue at all. I didn't have a sensitivity to it or an understanding of it as I should have. But several supporters of mine over the years kept saying, Kirsten, you need to look into this. You're on armed services. Look into what's happening to the women in the military. And I knew about it because there was context of women who were serving abroad who were raped, who couldn't get access to abortion services. So I started working on making sure they could get reproductive care, regardless of where they were serving. But then finally a friend said, we've just made this film. You need to watch this film. It's called the invisible war. And so when I saw the film, I mean, it bro- It absolutely broke my heart and, and not only did it make me upset and sad, it made me furious that men and women who are willing to risk their lives for this country Uh, were being not only assaulted by other service members, but then disbelieved when they reported it. And then not just disbelieved, but retaliated against for reporting. And I was so outraged. Um, I just got to work at it. And at the same time, I saw the film. I was given the opportunity to choose a subcommittee to chair, and I chose personnel because I thought I can do a hearing on this. And so we had the first hearing on what is the prevalence of sexual assault in the military? Why are the rules the way they are? Why do these survivors feel they can't come forward? And why are they being retaliated against? And we began to really develop a record that it is an epidemic. It's a scourge. Last year alone, there was 15,000 sexual assaults in the military. 6,000 brave souls reported, um, only about 4,000 openly. But of those who reported, 2% were ending in conviction. 2%. 2%. And of all those who reported, 59% were retaliated against today, oh. this year.
1: So what can you what can you do about so it? So
2: we're trying to change how they deal with these cases. Right now, the person who decides whether the case should go forward is a commander who is not a lawyer, who has no criminal justice training, and often has bias. If they know the perpetrator, or they know the perpetrator has a great record and a wife and two kids and believes him, uh, they, they don't They don't believe the survivors.
1: When you say who decides who goes forward, that means that if I am a victim of sexual assault, yeah, I tell my commander, and that person gets to decide whether they investigate or not,
2: yes, wow. so it may not be your direct commander. It might be his boss or his boss because okay. it's a it's a colonel or above, but it's in your chain of command, and they may know your perpetrator and they may be friends with your perpetrator, and so hmm. but they decide based on their own gut about what what you know who said what, and they just don't know That's enough the rule? they literally make their judgment based on whatever they think, and they also get to pick the judge the jury, the prosecutor, the and the defense does? and the defense counsel. They literally do the whole- That's the policy? That's the policy. It's oh, so outside crazy. the norm that it makes no sense. And so even the Supreme Court in 1967, 1969, uh, Thurgood Marshall wrote a decision that said, the way the military justice system works uh, allows for these biases. So if your commander thinks you're guilty or thinks you're innocent, he can- Rig the system against you or for you, whatever he wants to do, because he's he has every lever of power. And so for 20 years, the law of the land was under this decision was that any crime that wasn't military related was actually taken out of the military and a civilian prosecutor would get to prosecute it Mm. for 20 years based on the same arguments I'm making today. Today, I just want to give it to a military prosecutor. I don't even want to take it. Out of the military, I just want to give it to a prosecutor because a prosecutor has reasons to put a rapist in jail. The well-being of the community the rapist lives in, the well-being of other service members they have a criminal justice goal, not who do I like better, who's a better service member, who's better for me in my unit, who's, who's going to help against me.
1: Against this, though, that seems so common sense.
2: Well, it's about we have about half of Congress in favor of it, uh, half of the Senate. Excuse me, um, but we have constantly needed sixty votes over the last few years, and the last two years I haven't even gotten a vote. And so people don't want to change. They don't, they, you know, they didn't want to integrate the military. Are people they, against it?
1: Like, what are their arguments yeah, to they, not they, support they, this? They
2: believe that commanders should have full control of everything. And I understand that. And commanders are great at training troops and winning wars. They're not good at criminal justice. They, right. they don't have the training. They don't have the knowledge and they have a lot of bias. And when you just look at, you know, I do snapshots in time. I look at all the like, sexual assault cases in a given year from the four major bases. One of the years I looked at, 86% of the cases, he said consent and she said rape. They favored his view and didn't move forward. It, you don't have 86% false reporting. You have 2 to 5% of false reporting for sexual assault. So it's just not even close to the truth. They're just not getting to the truth. They're not trained for it.
1: What's the name? For people that want to go learn more about the bill, mm-hmm. what's the name of it's it? It's called
2: the Military Justice Improvement Act. We call it MJIA. And we're hoping to get a vote sometime in the next year. Uh, we'd like an up or down vote. It's, it's just wrong. These are literally men and women who would die for this country, and they deserve a criminal justice system that's worthy of that sacrifice. And they don't have it.
1: Now, so many people have been mobilizing around calling their senators, or mm-hmm. like writing, or Facebook messaging. Yeah. Does that stuff actually matter?
2: Yes, it does. Uh, it sometimes doesn't feel like it, but it really does. So, for example, during the nomination process. Uh, I read a lot of letters I got from constituents like, about like
1: handwritten letters, yeah, letters
2: like- postcards, phone calls. I would read their comments on the Senate floor to explain why these nominees were so horrible. When Betsy DeVos came forward, I can't tell you how many people wrote it and said, she's horrible. She doesn't believe in public school education. I think she'll do terrible things. When, when uh, Tillerson came up, when Sessions came up, uh, when
1: you voted against the secretary of defense, didn't you?
2: Yeah, I, I was. Yes,
1: you're the only vote.
2: Yes. Against.
1: Now, if you had to rank the 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 most influential ways to to like reach out to you or a senator, what would they be? Like, are do text messages matter? Like, faxes? Well, or like, so what's so
2: the, we, as an office, and a lot of Senate offices do that. We'll tally how many calls we got for or against an issue. We'll know. We'll have a weekly report on who people are calling. So calls are important. Calls are important. Letters are important. Uh, showing up. I mean, I did eight town halls this summer all across the state. It really mattered. I mean, I, each town hall, I answer between 10 and 20 questions um, depending on the town hall, but I got to meet constituents. The fact that they showed up and told me their story and, and told me how anxious, anxious or angry or concerned they were about any given issue. I remember all those questions. So showing up matters. Uh, do people
1: ever visit the Senate office?
2: Yeah, they do. And they'll meet with my staff and they'll, you know, to go, go through their issues. So just, Being heard is so important. Finding the platform to amplify as best you can really makes a difference. Uh, But being part of these conversations is affecting everything. And as you know, with the power of social media, uh, your voice can get amplified multiple times just by stating your views. I mean, people can be part of that, uh, whether they use Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, it doesn't matter. They just can, they might say something so profoundly that it goes viral. It might be something that, has an insight that nobody else has had yet and you'd be surprised sometimes when these things do go viral who who wrote who wrote it sometimes it could be a 17 year old girl like it's right. it, it's power has been flattened in a way with social media and it allows anyone to lead a debate shape a date, debate start a debate
1: what are what have you been doing on drugs opioids
2: so I'm very worried about the opioid crisis in our country, and I am very angry at the opioid industry because they think they are very much part of the problem. Um, I think there is issues uh, when you know kids across this country, across New York, get prescribed medicine. And if they take it as prescribed or addicted for the rest of life, that's a problem. It's a problem with the medical industry. It's a problem with training. Uh, I have several bipartisan bills to change. Uh, if you, for example, get your wisdom tooth out or are 18-year-old kid and you're given a 90-day supply of Percocet, well, if you take that 90-day supply, you probably will never not be addicted to opioids. And that's what a doctor gave you. And so one bill we had was to say, was, with John McCain, just to say you can only give seven-day supply of an opioid for acute pain. Um, but the other thing, you know, I, have been also working really hard in the medical marijuana space. And what I really do- dislike is how the opioid industry is trying to prohibit medical marijuana. I, I, I I've se- I don't, I think it's just about money. I, I really, when, when, when you look at the bottom of greed and corruption, uh, it's always about people who love money more than people who, who make decisions based on uh, profit, not people. And the root of anything is usually money. Um, it's the root of, I think, the problem with um, not making medical marijuana accessible. I think it's the opioid industry being greedy. I think if you look at um, the NRA, the root of the issue of gun violence and the way they just continually want to sell guns, regardless of who they go to, it's all about money. It's all about profit.
1: What you say though to, I'm sure some of your constituents are like, weed is bad. People shouldn't have weed. It's a drug. Like, mm-hmm. what do you say to those people?
2: Well, I, I, where my knowledge is is in the medical marijuana space. Cause I've met a lot of patients and you know, I met moms who have kids who have a hundred seizures a day. If you have Dravet syndrome or some other, these seizure disorders for little kids. The only legal medicine in some States is just these terrible barbiturates that knock the kids out. And then they can't learn how to walk. They can't learn how to talk. They can't learn to be a kid. And when they get access to CBD oil, which is a derivative of, um, pot they can uh, thrive like they they just they can learn to walk and talk and ride a bike and it's transformational for some of these children and I just hate the fact that that our DEA and our uh, HHS is prohibiting uh, people from getting that medicine and aren't doing the research and aren't getting it done at all because they have a an image that marijuana is for hippies or just some out-of-date understanding it's just a a medicine that should be researched and put into a pill form so people can take it um, in the same way they did with opioids. It's just a very active drug that can be used for medical reasons. You talk to vets um, that they can treat chronic pain and chronic anxiety with medical marijuana. I just, you talk to cancer patients, you talk to people with glaucoma, you talk to people with MS, and this is how they medicate. And it's absurd that one industry is trying to prevent another industry from being available through regular pharmacy. I mean, it's just ridiculous.
1: What about recreational use?
2: I don't know. I'm not, I'm not there yet. I'm just, I'm a mom. I have two boys. <laughs> I'm kind of afraid of it, but, um, but I don't think the criminalization of marijuana uh, is wise either. I think it's created a distortion of criminal justice in a way that is harmful to the future of this country and harmful to our communities And so I would decriminalize uh, marijuana. I think it is, um, I think the status quo is untenable and harmful.
1: Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere, there's more to come.
0: There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers, which means Tubi is more popular than using meat flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi. It's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there.
7: Here you are. BPM's high. Sweat dripping. Body moving. Tongue (laughs)
1: Now you have a you have two kids. You're one of the few working moms mm-hmm. in the in the Senate. How does that inform, if at all, the way that you think about either your work or your responsibility or the urgency of, of the task at hand?
2: Well, you know, I have two little boys. I've got uh, Henry, who's nine. I have Theo, who's fourteen, and I have a very normal life day to day because I have to be a parent first. So they keep me very normal. <laughs> and i make dinner i make breakfast i make lunch every day i do all the laundry i clean the floor i do all the stuff every mom does (laughs) i do everything um but do
1: you you, you eat cereal what's your breakfast of choice
2: i do not eat cereal but my kids do
1: you like an oatmeal do you eat breakfast
2: so i if i if i can go out to breakfast i get an omelet i like egg white omelets that's my favorite uh, if I eat at home I'll either have oatmeal or I'll just make it make some protein shake um, I have a protein shake I don't have a lot of great breakfasts, <laughs> kids if I'm but my kids do like oatmeal so I like to make a big pot of oatmeal and ha- feed them that they like oatmeal with brown sugar anyway uh, <laughs> not relevant <laughs> but uh, I think the I think having a I think for any parent, I think when we look at these issues of what the direction this country is going in, and particularly this notion of hate, uh, I think we as parents feel this moral responsibility to turn this country in a very different direction. I feel like under President Trump, we've seen hate c- crimes grow across our state. We've seen them grow across the country. People are treating people in horrible ways. And I need to teach my sons that this is not okay. Okay and that we have to want something very different for our community and our country and the world, and that we have a moral responsibility to our neighbor. And I believe, you know, my faith is important to me. So I really believe in the golden rule um, and that we have to treat others the way we want to be treated. And that applies to everything. And so that's the message I'm constantly trying to give my kids. And when our president behaves the way he behaves, uh, it's shocking sometimes. And so, um, you're just driving home different messages every day. And it's really important. And I, I haven't met a parent who hasn't felt anxious since president has been president. And it hasn't felt like I have to protect my children differently. I have to do more to build them up as good people, as good citizens. I need them to be wiser, stronger, and better than anybody before because they have a responsibility that's going to be even harder. So uh, it, it adds to the intensity of the moment.
1: Now I want to talk to you about your stances on immigration. So before you were in the Senate, uh, you were against some things like driver's license for illegal immigrants and and some other issues. It seems like you've turned around completely on those. I'd like to know like what led to that shift.
2: Well, on this issue and another, a couple others as well. I, I don't think I had the right lens. I think I was limited in my views. Um, I represented a very uh, 98% white congressional district, not a lot of diversity, not a lot of immigration issues were coming to me. And I recognized um, that when I was appointed to be a Senator, I was not prepared to do a good job and represent the whole state well, cause I didn't know enough. I just, I didn't know enough and I didn't take the time to know more as a house member which I'm embarrassed and ashamed about, that I didn't work hard enough to be a kinder person, a more empathetic person, a person who could feel the challenges that families were facing in a very real sense. And so I really tried it right away when I was appointed to learn what I didn't know and recognize there was a lot I didn't know. And that meant meeting with communities, talking to people, hearing their stories, listening, listening harder, Uh, and then empathizing and saying, what would I do if I was a mom in this situation? And it is very convicting when you, when you've had the wrong position and you haven't cared enough about somebody. To me, it just was, it was a, a huge flaw that I had to fix and something that I feel very responsible for. And so on immigration specifically, I just didn't, I didn't feel what it felt like to be a family who's being ripped apart by a horrible immigration policy that treats people horribly and inhumanely and is racist and is harsh and cruel. And when I got to meet people who were living that every day, living with someone who's worried their dad's going to be taken away or their mom's going to be taken away or they'll themselves are going to be kicked out. That's a stress that I can't even imagine having to face myself And so it just took time to just learn and then make a different decision and recognize that I didn't have the right perspective before. And it was really limited.
1: Do you think that we will get wins on DACA?
2: I think so. I think we have a real chance because the good news on DACA is it is bipartisan. And um, I think this is the one thing Democrats can hold the line on to keep the government running and just say, not unless you protect these kids. And I, I do believe that's the kind of idea that we can keep as least somewhat bipartisan or maybe nonpartisan and put it in the final deal by the end of the year. So I have, I actually have hope on DACA.
1: Now you talk a lot about bipartisanship in the, in the, as somebody who's not obviously in, in the Congress, it doesn't feel like there are a lot of people on the other side who are ready to sit down with you all and like work things out, but you seem to suggest that there are people who are on the other side
2: who you'd be surprised
1: wanna, i you know, I am surprised so <laughs> can you can you help us all understand like what it, what does bipartisanship mean in an era where it feels like everything is so like so hyper partisan like it seems right. like the party is just allowing Trump to do whatever he wants to do so what what does bipartisanship actually look like
2: so Uh, It means finding a senator who's a Republican who believes in the same cause you believe in. So on medical marijuana, for example, Cory Booker and I have been working with Rand Paul on that because we think it's really, really important to move that issue forward. On the sexual assault stuff, I have Ted Cruz and Rand Paul on my military justice bill. I have Marco Rubio on my campus sexual assault bill. So you can find common ground with pretty much anybody. That's it might be a small piece. It might not be a huge reform. Like but how Did might, you
1: did you just like call crews? And I like, asked hey. for meetings
2: with all of them. I just go to their offices, present the issue. But the interesting thing with Ted was funny. It, this issue started getting debated. I think it was four years ago, maybe five. And... I just made my presentation to the armed services committee because it was time to call a vote. And he apparently showed up and didn't have a decision about how he was going to vote. But he said on the record, he said, I thought Kirsten's argument was far more persuasive and I'm going to vote with her. And that's apparently never done because most people know exactly how they're going to vote before they get there. Having been well briefed by their staff. So he just had a moment of conscience and said, there's no reason why a boss should make decisions about someone who works for him about whether or not there's been a sexual assault. Like it doesn't make sense to me. So um, so I can find something to do with pretty much anybody. Um, and the key, though, is now is just getting votes. And that's where your listeners and the grassroots comes when, in. Getting votes means what? Meaning asking to have a vote on a topic. Like,
1: and for people that don't understand how this works, how so, would you explain so what would be like? Because
2: the- Democrats are in the minority, uh, the majority leader, his name is Mitch McConnell, and he's the lead Republican. And he decides what you get to vote on any given day. And so my military justice bill, they decided my bill, my amendment wasn't one that was going to get a vote. And so just didn't get a vote. It wasn't agreed to by both sides. Um, I've never had a vote on my campus sexual assault bill. I think if we had a vote on that, we'd win. We've got a good bipartisan. We have like 30 some odd co-sponsors. What's that
0: bill?
2: It's called CASA. um, And it's about changing how we deal with sexual violence on college campuses. And it's a good bill. And it, the, the most important part of that bill is just to have an online survey that every college kid in America gets to fill out to say, do I feel safe? What's the climate on my campus? Have I ever been assaulted? If so, did I report? If not, why didn't I report? It would give every campus administrator a snapshot in time of what their campus is like and whether it's safe and where are the red flags, where are the problem areas. So it's really common sense and good Um so, so I, I work on a bipartisan every day. I'm I'm working now with a bunch of offices on how to change the rules here in the Senate and in the House about how they deal with sexual harassment. Because like internally, yeah, because it's terrible here. It's opaque. It's difficult. They make if you're being harassed by your boss, it makes you go through counseling uh, for a month and a month of mediation and a month of cool down before you can even report that you've been harassed. Who
1: do you report it to?
2: To the Office of Compliance, which nobody knows where it is and who works there. So <laughs> okay. you don't even know what it is. So you have to post. So the
1: person who wants to report has to go through counseling before they can report yeah, it. Yeah, that's, how, well, that's,
2: that's how messed up it is. Yeah, it's is outrageous. that the same office
1: that was doing those payouts?
2: Yeah, yeah. Same uh, secret payouts. Yeah, same one. So one of the provisions of our bill that we're working on is that if the harasser is a member of Congress, they have to pay the payout, not the taxpayer. So an important change. So this bill, I think, will be bipartisan. Um it's got some Republican House members already on it. I'm working on a few Republican senators right now, hoping to get one or two by the end of the week. Do so, you, Do you have any thoughts is.
1: about what's happening in 18?
2: I think it's a huge opportunity for the grassroots. I think the grassroots has been so powerful since the election. I, I don't know. Did you march for the Women's March? Of course. It was so great. I had so much fun. <laughs> it was like a welcome I don't know, moments in time because I saw that men and women across the globe were willing to speak out on something they cared about. And it didn't matter what you marched for. It didn't matter if you were marching for black lives matter or women's reproductive freedom or LGBTQ equality or clean air, clean water. It just mattered that you marched and everybody got to carry their sign and everybody was, was welcome. It was really a, I think an amazing show of frustration with the election and not being heard. And so, um, Since that time, I really feel like the grassroots has been so bold and so effective. The only reason we don't have Trump care today is because the grassroots spoke so loudly, so aggressively, so effectively. In such a broad-based way, we had the votes we needed. We we changed senators' votes. This tax bill, which is as toxic and as corrupt as you possibly could imagine, just one example from your background. You know how, if, as a teacher, you might buy pens and pencils and supplies, staplers. You don't get to take a tax deduction under this bill, but the corporation they still get to deduct all their office supplies. Of like it's such BS. And the fact that uh, for a lot of people, they're, they're, if you're a middle class or lower wage worker, you're you're not going to have a tax. Cut And to pay for all this stuff, what they're going to ultimately do is cut Medicare and Medicaid. And because it's got that health care provision in it, because it takes away the mandate, it means all of our insurance premiums are going to go up. And a lot of people will now not be able to afford insurance. So it's a horrible bill. But to the point, I think it's an opportunity for the grassroots. And I think we can flip the house. I think the the activism that we've seen is so good. People are willing to fight for it. Why would
1: that matter? Flipping the house would mean what? Flip
2: so it would the- mean... Right now, uh, the Republicans control the House and the Republicans control the Senate and the Republicans control the White House. So you have three levers of power, which means President Trump gets to do almost anything he wants to do. Now, the only reason he's not been successful in his agenda, such as passing Trump care, 'cause the grassroots has spoke out so loud and so clear. The last election, we just had elections in November, we had candidates running all across the country we never would have expected. They won, they were diverse, they had a lot to fight for and they did a great job. So like that's what's working. And so in eighteen We'll have a lot of new candidates, a lot more diversity, a lot more first-time candidates who are going to be inspiring and exciting. We're going to have grassroots advocates who are willing to fight for them, whether that means making phone calls or knocking on doors or putting signs on their lawns. It doesn't matter. Whatever it is, it has an impact, and it works. You'll have that many activists fighting hard to change these powers. When you flip the House and the Democrats are now in control of the House of Representatives, you can block some of Trump's worst agenda. He he can't pass Trump Care without votes he needs so if you can take one one at least one body and flip it you have uh, a roadblock for him and it's important because he wants to undo every right and privilege that certainly you and I care about and he wants to do great harm to many many people and so we have to fight where we can and I think you can do it um, certainly electorally by helping candidates that share your values and if no one is running that shares your values then run yourself
1: and, last couple of questions is one is there are a lot of people in this moment who are losing hope, who feel like mm. it's all they're they're fighting and like nothing's changing or they we want on health care. and then, like we're about to lose on taxes. It, that hope is becoming a rare commodity in this moment. What do you say to those people?
2: Well, first, don't lose hope because it is working. Uh, and that actually all this activism is making a difference. You cannot underestimate the fact that we have defeated Trumpcare three times because of the grassroots. It's only because of the grassroots. Um, If you just look at the electoral victories, uh, the fact that we have a transgender woman who beat the guy who wrote the bathroom law, that's victory. That is really hopeful and exciting. So I would just tell your listeners don't lose hope because it's working and, and this is the moment when your perseverance and stick and determination is going to make the biggest difference and that you can do it. Um, Anytime, uh, justice has been achieved, it's been achieved because of hard, hard, hard work and that we cannot be the generation that drops the ball. So just keep fighting and know that it, it, it does have an impact and you are changing minds and you are changing votes and you are going to elect people that are better than the people here. And that's what's most important that, that we can change who represents us by fighting for people who share our values. And again, if not, we run ourselves. And that's exciting. We've had a lot of cool people run for office that would have never considered it before. And that's beautiful. And what the country needs, we need to change the players list. And that's what our voices can do um, just by fighting and not giving up.
1: And last question is, what is a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you?
2: Well, this is relevant also to the last question. So... When I became a senator, I really didn't know what to do or how to do anything. And so, um, one of my first jobs was to try to pass the 911 Health Bill. And I thought, "Oh my goodness, I don't I don't know how to do this." And um I went to Mary Landrieu at the time who had done so much for Hurricane Katrina victims and really done what you could possibly do to rebuild her communities. And so she said this piece of advice that is really important. She said, "Kirsten, uh to 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 win to you have to tell people why you care and that's exactly what activism is you have to tell people why you care if you can't tell them why it makes you so angry or why it makes you so sad or why this is the most important thing to you they can never empathize and so it's up to us it's up to us to not only hear stories listen to stories take those stories as your own, amplify those stories a hundredfold, keep doing it over and over again. But it's that emotion. It's that realness, that, that authenticity that comes from knowing someone and hearing someone and being able to tell their story that makes you effective. And I didn't know that. And she taught me that. And I, it's the most important lesson I've ever learned in politics that you have to be able to tell people why you care. It's all about the why and, how it affects you and why it breaks your heart or why it makes you furious or why it's not acceptable. And uh, for all those folks listening who want to be heard, um, it's explaining why do you care and how is it impacting you and your family and your child and your community, and then uh, hope that people are listening and that they can then take your message and spread it. And that's, that's how you change the world.
1: Cool. Well, thank you. We consider you a friend of the pod. Can't wait to have you back. Thank uh, you.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks so much for joining us on Pod Save the People. Uh, Make sure that you tell a friend. Make sure that you rate this on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And I will see you back here next week.
7: The Living Room is where you make life's most beautiful memories.